Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. As Christians, we can throw around the word uh, faith that it almost comes a form or a bit of a cliché we just talk about strengthening our faith or needing more faith and not really understanding what faith is or what it means. One of the temptations we can have is just think that maybe Scripture is just about our faith. That's part of it. It's part of the message of Scripture. But there's certainly far more than just our faith. Because the author of Hebrews is applying the blessings of Christ to us. So we begin to think about the significance of faith, faith in Christ, not faith in faith. But what is faith? What does it really do? Why, why do we have faith? Why are we exhorted to have faith? So what fundamentally does it do? So we'll ask first, what is faith? Secondly, who believed? And is faith really necessary? Do we really need it? And so let's begin with what is faith? Uh, we look at this, actually the first section is more verses 1 through 3, but I'm just going to be focusing on verse 1 and sort of backing up in the context in 10 verse 39. Because when we notice this transition, it says, now faith is the assurance of things, right? So we're building on what has gone before, and this is one of the challenges of preaching. When you break it up into sections, you, you sort of make it disconnected. And so it's important to understand 11 verse 1 follows right after 10 verse 39. I know that's obvious, but thematically, there's a reason that the author is now talking about faith. Because when he's putting this in the context of faith, notice in verse 39, he warns of shrinking back. And so this is basically facing troubling circumstances, trials. We see um, it seems there's an implication their property was seized. Um, they had individuals who were imprisoned. Uh, these are things that would set them back. And so what happened is it seems people turned from the faith. They said, I, I don't want Christianity. I'm going to go back to the Jewish Hebrew uh, way of doing things. I don't like this um, thing about Christ and, and what's coming into our synagogues. And we need to go back to what we had. And so that seems to be the implication. And so the author of Hebrews is warning that if we shrink back, this means turning away, running away, uh, not wanting to suffer for Christ, there's serious consequences. And we say, but, but what are the serious consequences, right? He says we're not to shrink back because when we shrink back, we are destroyed. Uh, this destruction, sometimes used in the sense of waste, uh, sometimes it's cast away, like we see in Matthew 26, 8. Paul uses it several times to communicate absolute, eternal uh, destruction. Uh, for instance, we see an example of that, the man of lawlessness, uh, who is going to be ultimately destroyed in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. And so that's the force of this. Even Peter himself 
uh, speaks of prophets who come in, they're false prophets, and they bring in their destruction and heresies that these false teachers bring into the church in 2 Peter 2, uh, verses 1 and 3. And so ultimately, the author of Hebrews is saying, if you shrink back and say, I don't want Christ, I don't see Christ as being sufficient, he's saying you're actually being uh, reserved and held for destruction. That's scary. So the author of Hebrews is saying to the church, don't turn from Christ. I mean, that's the real simple way of saying this. Saying turning from Christ has very grave consequences. He has just went through who Christ is. Melchizedekian priest resides in the heavenly temple. So somebody says, well, we don't have a priest as Christians. Hebrews says, yes, you do. He resides in heaven. Didn't you hear my argument in chapter 9? We don't have a blood sacrifice. Yes, you do. You have a one-time shedding of Christ. Did you not hear the argument in Hebrews 9? So it's basically what the author is doing here in 10 verse 39. Now what I like about Hebrews is as he sort of slaps us in the face, because that's really what the first part of this verse is. I mean, it sort of slaps you in the face, wakes you up and go, oh my goodness. So, so how do I get out of this? He goes, oh, glad you asked. He says, those who have faith preserve their souls. So that's where it's important to understand the warning in verse 39, which is followed by an exhortation, right? He gives a warning, you're going to go to hell if, if you don't watch yourself. But this is what you can do. This is how we can be assured that we prevent that very outcome. Because this faith that he gives us is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, when he talks about hope, remember the author of Hebrews is not speaking of hope in the sense of pie in the sky that, you know, I just have some sort of feeling that tomorrow's going to be better. That's not the hope we have. Now, it's not necessarily bad to have that hope, so I'm not, you know, uh, degrading it. But the, the author of Hebrews is saying our hope is grounded in Christ. So it's not a hypothetical thing. It's a reality that as I take hold of Christ by faith, I know then I'm going to enter into the heavenly Canaan. So that's what we got to understand with hope. It's the assurance that I will enter into the heavenly glory. I know it because I have Christ. And so when he talks about this assurance of things hoped for, this is something else that is used in chapter 4. And it's important to see how he drops these themes and picks them up. Because this is recalling for us the very priests that we have in the heavenly temple. That as we draw near to Christ, we have the assurance that we can approach the throne of grace. Right? So it's that reminder that when we're tempted to say, oh, I don't have a priest. I don't have the sacrifice. I don't have the temple. I don't have the tabernacle. I have lost everything in this new fangled Christianity. He was saying, no, you haven't. You're drawing near to God in the heavenly glory, seated at the right hand of the Father with a priest who is holy enough to live there forever. And as you draw near, you're drawing near to that throne of grace. Not a throne of judgment, a throne of grace drawing near in the presence of your God. So when he uses this assurance... He's telling us that, that we need to understand what this faith is doing. We're not just reaching into this strange thing. We're taking hold of Christ and all of his benefits. 
They are ours right now. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. So he's saying, don't minimize what you have. When he talks about this assurance, he's telling us that this assurance is not just some assurance, but it's also a conviction. Now, this conviction is partly knowledge. You know, Peter tells us to set our mind on this hope. So there, there is a, a call to know our doctrine, a call to know what we believe. But this conviction is also something that's that's deep-rooted. It's something that orients our life, that, that we know God in such a way that as he's used the example, for instance, in Hebrews, that we're willing to have our property seized. We're willing to face persecution because we know in this age what we face is nothing in comparison to what we have in the age to come. Now, I'm not saying necessarily massive persecutions coming our way or anything like that. But it's the reality of where we have to orient our hope, our orientation, our focus, our, our thoughts, our convictions have to rest in Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is saying this is what faith does. Now when we hear in verse 39 that in the power of this faith we have this assurance that our souls will be preserved. Now this preservation that's going on is this assurance that we will enter into the very rest of God, not only just in terms of, of a hypothetical, but it's the assurance that the very essence of who we are will be in the presence of God forever. God will do this. So when we look back then at this assurance and conviction that's recalled for us in verse 1. Take this in verse 39 understand kind of basically what this means. We have this assurance, this this confidence that something is certain. He refers to this in 1 verse 3, that Christ is basically the assurance, the, the concreteness. It's the same word of the Father's nature. So if we say, well, what does the Father look like? Well, we had Christ. He, he came. He entered history. That's the manifestation of the fullness of who God is. And uh, we have in 3 verse 14, the call for us to hold to this original assurance. And so we're, we're going to build on what this original assurance. We, we may think it's the faith we had when we were converted, but it's far bigger than that. It's the original uh, manifestation of what God has done throughout all covenant history. And so we, we have a, a long precedent of God being a shield and defender. This conviction building on this is really the fruits of the Spirit that are manifested in our lives. So we, we have this internal working of God that's working within us. Uh, he's transforming us, conforming us. This is why in our prayer of confession, I, I try to pray, Lord, you know, conform us to your will. That we're saying in the power of your spirit, root out those things that, that distract me from you. Uh, convict me, search my heart, is sort of along the lines. That it's taking the, the internal nature of who we are and reorienting us so that now we are tuned in to the heavenly glory at which we are called. It's the Spirit working out God's plan so we bring forth fruits of the faith, or as our catechism says so well, of fruits of gratitude. And so that's uh, what we understand in terms of this faith. You know, what is this faith? Well, this faith is it's reaching into Christ. 
It's taking hold of a power and it's conforming to our Lord. So now I, I sort of spill over into the next section when we look at this. Well, who believed? Right? And we talked about the precedent. Well, well who believed? So we look at verses 2 uh, through 5. And we sort of see this, this general precedent that's presented here. So we notice that there were those of old who received their commendation, verse 2. Uh, these are the ones who have gone before us. So they, they are the saints who have died, who are seated in heaven, uh, you know, in the intermediate state, beginning to taste the bliss of Christ, longing for the fullness. You know, we see this in Revelation with the souls under the altar. How long, O Lord, uh, that they want to be resurrected and enter into the fullness of glory. But these are the wise ones who have gone before us. So the author of Hebrews is saying, let's look at these individuals who have gone before us, lived their lives even before the great Melchizedekian priest, Christ Jesus, walked this earth. How did they pattern their lives? That's what he wants us to understand. And so we're looking at their testimony. In fact, testimony he's used in terms of Christ in chapter 7, uh, verses 8 and 17, where he speaks of the testimony of Melchizedek, the, the precedent, the, the, the teaching of this reality. The Holy Spirit himself, 10 verse 15, is the one that bears testimony to us. So in other words, it's not just some objective thing where we line up these arguments and say, which argument's more powerful and which one do I need to be more persuaded of? Well, we certainly see uh, how the Lord has worked. We, we have an argument set before us, but there's also the reality of the Spirit that is present within us bearing testimony to the truthfulness of those claims of those who have gone before us, that, that we see why they do what they have done. But going on, that it's not just the saints who have received their commendation. And so, verses 1 through 3, he kind of goes to the saints, but he says, we also understand the first creation. And so what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand, because they can say, oh, it's just the word. These are just words. This is just preaching. It's just a gospel going out. What does it really do, right? I mean, we, we can have that attitude. I think we can fall into that mindset. This is where he addresses that in verse 3. And he says, by the word of God, we see this creation comes into being. And so he's presenting the word of God as a presentation of God gives a command. God gives an order. And something that is not there comes into being. Now he's doing two things here at least. The first thing is he's saying the word of God carries out its, its effect. The word of God will produce something. The Word of God accomplishes God's intention. So that's the first thing. But the second thing he's doing is answering the criticism that seems to be creeping in potentially in the church or what some people say about the author of Hebrews. That he's just a Platonist. Now, now remember this philosophy. There's a really real world. It's just shadows. It's forms. And then there's a world of material that at best is just a reflection of that really real world. So some people say, see, that's heaven he's speaking of. This world is an inferior world of forms. 
And so the, the thing to, to note about Plato's belief is that the world of forms is basically organized matter that's put together. Well, the author of Hebrews is saying there's no matter there. God called into being what was nothing, and we see the manifestation of his word's power that was what was not there a moment ago is there. What was not ordered is ordered. What was not created is now created simply by the word of God. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that the invisible word, the invisible God, manifests his power because his word does something. That we have something that's visible and tangible that comes into being by the power of his word. Now we look at this and we notice now, so we, we go from verse 3, now we move to verse 4. And he says, okay, so we see the, this world comes into being. Now he, he moves to almost what we want to do as a division. This is why I wanted to put these together. We say, oh, well, now he's talking about the faith of the saints, right? Well, when you look closer, you understand what he's calling to our attention. So verse 4 we notice that Abel is the one who once again has, makes a more acceptable sacrifice to God. God's commending him. He has this acceptable gift. It's not because of his offering being one of blood. But we know why his offering is acceptable to God. Because it's by faith. And now when you look at the original uh, story of this in Genesis 4, you have the blood of Abel bears witness or testimony. But that's not what's bearing testimony here. It's his faith. And so his faith and, and why he lives his life and why he gives us this better uh, sacrifice is because he's confident, he's convicted in what the Lord's doing. Why is he confident? Why is he convicted? Because this is a manifestation of God's power. His word taking effect and root is manifesting itself in the fruits of of what we see in Abel's life. Now, when we walk through uh, this testimony or this commendation, we find that this word is used eight times throughout Hebrews, a couple times in different verses. And as it's used, the, the implication seems to be that you're moving from the complete Sabbath to the plus one. And I would argue Hebrews is deliberate enough to do this. This is a very well-written um, letter is, is obviously very thought out as the author does this. And as it's very organized and very written out, he's calling us to see that, that we're moving into that plus one of beginning to taste the blessings of God. And so Abel then, being the one who's called to our attention first and foremost, first martyr, first one willing to give up his life for the sake of the promises of the gospel, this is proving that the word of God accomplishes its effect. Abel believed it. His faith was rooted in the living God. We move on then to another example, Enoch. Now Enoch, in the Old Testament, he's uh, actually citing the Septuagint translation of the story of Enoch. The Hebrew basically implies that, that Enoch was there and then he was not seen. It's mysterious as to what has happened. Uh, the Septuagint gives a little bit more uh, sort of uh, a commentary in its translation, if you will. And the presentation from, uh, 
what we find in the Septuagint is that presentation that there you have Enoch who, who lived, God took him, the taking of him is not death, but then he actually moves from this age to the age to come. That's the implication. Now, in terms of, of the Jewish tradition, Enoch was known as being one who's a very repentant man. And so the, the thought is that he's saved by his personal piety, right? His piety, his faithfulness is what has saved him and made him worthy of the Lord's blessing. But as Hebrews plays on this and, and is demonstrating, I'm aware of the Septuagint translation by the, by the translation that it takes, it wants us to understand it's by faith. That it's this faith that's manifesting God's faithfulness. So it's not calling attention to Enoch and what he has done, if you read this. It's actually calling attention to how God has delivered him. And so the word of God accomplishes its effect and we see the result. Then all of a sudden Enoch is one who experiences the blessings of God. And it's important to understand this because in Genesis 5, where the story is located, there's a tragic genealogy. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then we have presented as the one who's actually faithful, reminding us of God's purpose and what he is doing. And so the testimony that goes before us is that the Old Testament saints manifest the power of the Word of God. The invisible Word manifests itself in the tangible results of their fruits of their faith. Now going on then, we may say, okay, so then why is faith really so necessary? And this is sort of a, a puzzling uh, thing that, that we find here. Because we go from Enoch, and then we move to Noah as the next example. And then you have verse 6 sort of inserted in there. But, but let's just skip down to verse 7 for a moment and think about who Noah is and what he has done. That we have this, this faith of Noah. So he's warned by God. Now, now this is an important word that's used here in the Greek. Because it's not just a warning that comes to someone, but it's specifically a warning that comes by divine revelation. An example would be the Magi who visit Christ. That there is an angel that warns them. So there's a divine revelation. Don't go back the way you came. Herod's going to kill you. It's not safe. So this, this warning that's given to Noah is a divine revelation, God's word that's given to him. And as this word is given to Noah, he goes and he builds an ark, right? So it's the word of God accomplishing this visible effect that Noah acts on this word, that, that it does something within Noah as he, as he uh, builds this ark and is assured that this word is true. Now, when, when we hear that, we say, okay, so, so we see that the tangible results of this. Now, what's puzzling about this to me, or at least when I first, or, or as I've read this many times, I've always wrestled with, why is verse 6 placed where verse 6 is? It, it seems to fit better with verse 3. And then you take Noah and you put him up against Enoch and then move on with the saints. Because verse 6 now communicates the reality and importance of faith. It says it's impossible. I mean, this comes across in English quite plainly. We cannot please God apart from faith. 
If we're not taking hold of Christ by faith, we will not please God. This is why we say, question answer 91, all good works have to start with faith. If we don't believe in God, if we don't believe in Christ, if we don't believe the gospel, there's no point in going to church. There's no point in claiming Christ. He is not your Christ. That's what Hebrews is saying in a very blunt way. Now again, think of 10 verse 39. You deny Christ, don't take hold of Christ by faith, not your Christ. This is not your God. It's a difficult thing to hear. But the author of Hebrews doesn't pull any punches. And so he's reminding us on, on one level, we need to please God. That if we want to draw near to God, we do so first and foremost by faith. And as we draw near to God in the confidence of Christ, we understand that as we pursue God, that it's, it's a worthwhile pursuit. He rewards us. It's not to say a health and wealth gospel, as some people may try and read into this verse. But he's speaking of, of, of a fulfilled life. Because he's going to go on to actually contradict the health and wealth gospel. In fact, a lot of these people walking by faith, it doesn't seem to end so well for them in terms of this life. But in terms of the eternal bliss, the eternal life we have in Christ, it's everything. And so the author of Hebrews on one level is reminding us in verse 6, sort of saying, hey, listen, Noah didn't do this thing in his own strength. Noah wasn't doing this in his own power. It's a manifestation of the Spirit and the faith that is taking hold of the promises of God that's working out. That this reality is being accomplished. And so when, when we hear this assurance that we are those who, who seek God, search God, this searching God is an actual discernment. And when we think about the scriptures, I'm not the only one who has used this analogy, but we think of scriptures as being the ocean. That you can go on one level and just say, yeah, it's blue water, there's fish in there, and it's, it's just a great sea. But you continue to go down layer by layer by layer by layer and you find that there's different fish, there's different types of animals, there's different things there. That's what the author of Hebrews is reminding us. Seeking God means that we're continually wanting to learn more and more of his goodness. We want to meditate more and more on who God is. We want to meditate more and more upon his promises and the goodness of Christ and the fullness of what he has done. And the author of Hebrews is saying, in such an endeavor, as we do this, as we commune with God in a closer and more real way, we have a blessing. But how does this start? And then he goes on. Word of God accomplishes its effect. It's the assurance that as we are those who walk after Christ, seeking to pursue Christ, this endeavor is worthwhile. And so the author of Hebrews then we're calling for us Enoch and Noah. On the one hand, we could say these are probably the most tangible results of faith, right? I mean, if, if you escape death in the midst of a genealogy of death, that's pretty impressive. If you're one who escapes death uh, when the world that goes through an uncreation to be recreated in its typology of the flood, it's pretty impressive. And we could say, wow, these guys must have been superpowers. These men must have been the ones who, who really were ones that had it together. This is where verse 6 is reminding us. No. This is the visible manifestation 
of the Word of God. That's what the author of Hebrews wants to remind us in verse 6. We think of him putting his arms around us and saying, listen, listen, fellow sojourner, this, this is the reality of it. This is a manifestation of faith. Don't see faith as a powerless thing. You are reaching into Christ. His Spirit is at work in your life. As you commune together to worship, as he gives a warning, don't forsake meeting together, as is a habit of some, as we join together, as we commune, as we worship, as we sit under the means of grace, this word continues to cultivate this life within us. And so the reminder is that as we do this in terms of our seeking, discerning our God, we're learning more and more of his goodness. It's the wholeness of the Christian walk. That the pursuit of God is a worthwhile pursuit. And it is in the pursuit of God that his word continues to take residence within us. That that invisible power manifests itself. One last analogy again, not unique to me, wish it was. But an analogy that in this passage, when you look at this, you think about the beams that hold the house. And these beams are like the Word of God, right? It's, it's the eternal purpose of God where He's moving it to His eternal glory. And it holds the whole building up. We don't see it. We take it for granted. But that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. The power of the Spirit, the faith that we have worked in us and the power of the Spirit reaching into Christ is the Lord moving us to His eternal purpose, to His eternal goal, manifesting and working out his very desires that we bring forth the fruits that he desires for us to bring forth. But it's not about us. It's about his spirit, about his upholding hand, about the Lord being the shield and defender, about the Lord being faithful to his promise. So ultimately, that's why the author of Hebrews is calling this to our attention. He's saying, listen, this precedent and catalog of saints it's not just do this and live. The author of Hebrews is saying, God has been consistent in his purpose. And these individuals who have walked by faith, by the power of the Spirit, worked in them through the word of God. You see that, that the fruits of the faith are manifested as they live out their lives before the Lord. It's the invisible power that is being manifested in a visible way. As the first creation came into being through this means, so the new creation comes into vision through this means. And so we conclude then. So what does this faith fundamentally do? What does Hebrews remind us of this faith? Well, as he puts verse 6 between Enoch and Noah, he's reminding us it's not about their faithfulness. It's about the consistency and the plan of God. It is about the power of his gospel that goes forward. It's in the power of his word that life comes. That the invisible word accomplishes a visible effect in the fruits of the faith. And so the author of Hebrews is saying in terms of our pursuit of God, our Melchizedekian priest, our walking in our Christian life, this is not a waste of time. Those who have gone before us bear witness and have received their reward. Those who seek God 
are those who receive the ultimate glory and reward of God? What's the initial power in that pursuit of God? The initial power is the invisible word that works at faith in our lives. And as we cultivate and grow in the confidence of who we are in Christ, the peace of what Christ has done, the more assured we are that we will enter into the Lord's rest. So let us then be a people who see ourselves as oriented in a heavenly kingdom. A people who have the power of God's word at work within us. A people who have the spirit producing the effects of his word. So we see the fruits of that invisible power. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.